electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome to Closing Bell. I'm Mike Santoli in for Scott Wapner. This make or break hour begins with more evidence of a hot consumer economy scorching bond investors, sending Treasury yields to new 16-year highs and boosting cyclical stocks at the expense of big tech. The S&P 500 index made another trip toward a four-week high before again backing off around midday. But the small cap Russell 2000 is popping for a second day in a row as banks catch a bit as well after reassuring results from Bank of America, which takes us to our talk of the tape. Can good news for the economy remain good news for stocks, even if it means yields go higher and stay there? Let's ask Adam Parker, Trivariate Research founder and CEO and a CNBC contributor, and Cheryl Young, Rockefeller Family Office, private wealth advisor. Welcome to you both. Good to have you both here. Um, so, so there's the setup, Adam. I mean, the, the soft landing scenario, you haven't seen much of anything to really disturb that. Market has been trying to make its peace with yields at these levels. Um, I guess putting on a brave face, you have this rotation away from big tech. How does it feel to you? I mean, my bias is that we can go higher over a few months. Um, and, you know, the market's been remarkably resilient to some pretty uh, extreme uh, uh, politics and, and global uh, risk. Um, I think most people came in this year underallocated to U.S. equities, believing you know, bond yields look more attractive, and they haven't fully participated in this rally. They didn't own a bunch of you know, Tesla and NVIDIA Meta on Jan 3rd and hold it all the way through. And so I think there could be a pretty big chase. I don't believe that good news is bad for the market for a sustained period. It can happen briefly when yeah. people get worried. But basically, good news is good news. And answering the question in your teaser, there's lots of uh, evidence historically that market, the stock market can work when bond yields rise because often they're both emblematic of better growth. Yeah. So I think that the risk reward skewed to the positive, um, at least, you know, through earnings here. Cheryl, I mentioned, you know, the good news that, that we got evidence of this morning was largely the retail sales coming in very strong. Even industrial production was OK. At the same time, Fed officials have been out there saying, OK, we're not going to necessarily look to do a whole lot more from here. Um, is that a green light for stocks or do we still have to say, you know, how long can this growth last? How long can the economy withstand higher yields? Uh, look, I think this is a market where you have to be very picky in terms of what you own because there are green lots on some sectors and some stocks. But I wouldn't be excited about the overall markets at this point. Um, I look back at this COVID hangover effect I think we've had. And when I look at people I know, they are traveling, eating out despite the higher costs. And so the feds are saying, hey, we have to get inflation under control. But people are saying, I don't care how much I'm spending. I'm going to go on these trips. Consumer credit card debt passed a trillion, highest level we've ever seen. Savings rates have been cut in half in the last year. I look at the markets and say, how can people keep spending? And the retail numbers this morning were phenomenal, but that actually concerns me a little bit. Yeah, I mean, they're spending, like, it's like a 3.8% annualized growth rate in retail spending. That's about what wages are up. 
right? That's a nominal number. So it's strong relative to what we were expecting. But I guess it's really this tricky point where you say, is it sustainable? Is it, uh, are we going to kind of fall off quickly in terms of activity? You know, I don't think we're going to fall off quickly. Yeah. I, I think if I gave anyone a project, tell me what the U.S. consumer's condition is. And I said, ingest any data you want, mm-hmm. whether you look at wages and jobs, which really multiplied by each other are the, are the revenue in this analog. And they're still pretty good. Yeah. Right? You can talk about dissaving shore, other stimulus. You can talk about 90-day credit card. No matter what I tell you to do, you're going to say the consumer's in good shape in absolute terms, but it's getting a little bit worse. Right. So the market can work in that scenario if it really is a sustained Goldilocks, which is people think they're done hiking or there's one more. Well, yeah. certainly on the other side of that cycle, and earnings don't collapse. And that's what I think is going on, at least for the next few months. There was some interesting commentary. Uh, Richmond Fed President, I believe it was, Barkin today. And he, he Cheryl, got at your point about this sort of willingness to spend more. And he's basically saying one thing we didn't bargain for is, you know, there's a cohort of relatively wealthy investors. They own stocks. You know, they did they saved a lot. They didn't spend a lot down. They have a lot of home equity and they're out there being pretty aggressive with it. It also pairs with this idea that older Americans are spending pretty heavily, 65 and over. They're, you know, they're traveling and doing whatever. And I just wonder if that changes the Fed equation or puts them uh, on more of an alert for we may have to do more or is it just going to be about inflation? Yeah, I think we might have one rate hike ahead of us. I don't think it's going to happen at the end of October, but maybe 50% chance December or January it could happen. Yeah. Um, and I think feds could keep rates longer at a higher level than we originally had thought. Um, but to Adam's point, there are still a lot of healthy things in this economy that I'm excited about. And you have to look at where the opportunities are and be maybe willing to sit in a sideways market and be patient. Um, yeah which works really well for options, which is a lot of what I do. Oh, is that right? Yeah. It's, it's, for selling them. It, I, I sell calls. I buy yeah. puts. Okay. Um, on a day like today where we've had these massive swings, it's been really fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, fun would have big swings and no big net moves. It's okay. Uh, right? I was just thinking about your, your, your you know, kind of 65-year-old cohort. I mean, if you look back at data 30 years from now, wouldn't, couldn't you say, wait a minute, this is like the greatest period ever. Like the equity market was a rip fest while you were getting rich and working. And then as you got a little bit older, all of a sudden you can get 5% uh, yeah. on bonds and now you know you're spending because you're like all right I just bought like I'm sure your books the same way every advisor right. I know just had a, had a huge increase in people buying short duration treasuries people bought yeah, the two right. year at five percent so their business is down short term but it's the right thing to do for their clients I'm not saying hers but right, a no, lot the of the clients advisors. are pulling in so, 5% yeah, so if you're sitting, if you're and, if you're yeah. a rich guy you're sitting on 20 million bucks and you you rip from equities the last yeah. now you can you can make a million a year doing nothing like so I think people are spending because they're like I'm locking in some decent money so what you're saying that. is yeah. for 70 years straight things are breaking in the direction of baby yeah, right. that's right. I think 30 years from now, people are going to look back and be like, these, that, these 30 years from yeah. now, if equity market's going to be bad, and exactly. maybe people are going to be like, what happened? You know? yeah. we, we need to jump to a, a news alert uh, right now on U.S. bankrupt. Leslie Picker here with that. Hi, Leslie. Hey, uh, Mike, yeah, those shares are higher today. They were up as much as 11%, although they've come down a little bit since the news first broke. This is an 8K filing, basically saying that the Fed is releasing them from some stricter regulation that they had uh, been engaging in as a result of an acquisition that they had made. So according to the 8K on October 16th, the Fed provided notification to U.S. Bank that it has been released from commitments to basically provide uh, quarterly implementation plans as a category two banking organization. That's usually for banks that have more than $700 billion in assets. There are various categories according to asset size, and category two would be the 
basically the second largest tier.、Uh, but as of the end of its second quarter, U.S. Bank was under that threshold, yet still reporting. As a category two, under the requirements of this acquisition that it has, as of December twenty twenty two, with MUFG Union Bank. So, as part of that deal, they have been undergoing kind of stricter regulatory plans with the Fed, and now, according to this eight K, they have been released of those commitments. So, shares popping on this news up about six percent right now, higher earlier when the eight K was first filed in U.S. Bank Corp. Uh, is scheduled to report its earnings before the market opens tomorrow for the third quarter, guys. Or Leslie, yeah, no, interesting. Thanks so much. And boy, it's a good encapsulation of like the way banks are viewed right now. Like hurricanes, like category two. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> We just had a little bit of capital freed up. It changes the entire <laughs> equation for what this, the net present value of the business is worth.、Right. On the other hand, I mean, just in general, we do have banks as a whole up a couple percent again today. Bank of America's numbers pretty good, and I, I guess Adam, it gets. To your point, maybe we get into broader earnings on this too, which is, you know, they said the consumers slowing down from strong levels. They are kind of a, of, of a toll taker across the entire U.S. economy, and things remain okay. And credit loss rates are normalizing from low levels. They don't look bad on a pre-pandemic basis. Yeah, it's funny. Last Monday, I guess、uh, eight days ago, I was looking at Truist, and it was trading,、yeah. you know, seven percent plus dividend at seven times earnings, and Stock was getting awfully close to March 2020 lows, and you know I sent the email to my t- to my team saying like, let's look at all stocks that are near March. Like, these are、yeah. real companies. They didn't really do anything wrong. Pretty good geographical footprint. Maybe nothing should be near March 2020 lows. Certainly, we had more fears about.、Yeah. So, I think there's some things that just got really you know kind of oversold, even with a hold maturity issue or whatever some of the banks have. So yeah, they're cheap. I think, but just people worry about next year being. A regulation nightmare, and and so it's hard to get super excited about them trading at premiums to book. Right, but some of these are trading below book and. and Probably have pretty safe dividends. The upside so,、yeah. is definitely kind of unclear beyond a certain,、yeah. you know, let's normalize the valuations maybe. Right.、Um, but you know, it's also the fact, Cheryl, that you haven't had any nasty surprises out of the bank numbers that have come out so far, and I think that's one of the things that unnerves investors about what's happening in the bond market. Not so much that we've never seen, you know, five percent, ten and thirty-year rates before, but that we got here in a curry、yes. from a period when nobody was necessarily prepared for it, and what did that destabilize in the process? Yeah, you have to wonder about the mark to market. I mean, look, we saw this in March with a couple of of banks that have now been acquired and and are no longer with us, and so I don't really worry about the bigger banks.、Um, I do very much worry about the regional banks. We look at the amount of debt that's coming due. The regional banks have a lot of floating debt. They also have a lot of bonds that maybe are a little bit too long in terms of their duration. So this is an area. You know, financials are flat on the year, with the S and P up 14 percent. So massive, massive underperformance among banking stocks across the whole. Yeah. But I'd be very, again, picky. About what banks you want to own in your portfolio. Yeah, no, it's low net. It's low net, high gross. You know,、mm-hmm. so I don't think you want to have massive exposure. But I definitely think when financial conditions tighten, all of our work shows we're better at picking winners from losers in banks in that regime because、mm-hmm. some of the bad ones get sort of. Exposed. Left behind, yeah. yeah.、Sure. But I think the question is, are there good ones trading near March 2020? I think there might be,、yeah. and that that might create a little bit of a short-term trade. Sure. Yeah.、Uh, stick with me here.、Uh, we do want to get to、uh, another one of the big groups moving today. Chips 
taking a major hit. The SMH ETF falling, but now well off the lows. This on the back of news that the U.S. is planning to further restrict chip exports to China. Christina Partsinevelis here with all the details. Hey, Christina. Yeah, that's because the U.S. wants to cut off China's AI industry. And like you said, by announcing new export restrictions that include even more advanced computing chips and close any shipping loopholes through which third party that involve third party countries. So if you sell an AI chip to China, you're going to have to let the U.S. government know. NVIDIA's AI chips made specifically for China are now restricted. The stock off earlier lows, but still you can see down 5% and still down 5% after they said they don't expect a near-term meaningful impact on their financial results. Whereas equipment maker ASML, for example, says the restrictions would impact sales in the medium to long term. Intel also makes China-only chips, and AMD has been working with Chinese hyperscalers. So both of those companies could also be subject to controls and why you're seeing the shares sell off today. Separately, though, I want to bring your attention to shares of VMware. They're lower on a report from a Chinese outlet that Chinese regulators need more time to review Broadcom's acquisition of VMware. And of course, that has some investors spooked. VMware shares are down almost 7%, Broadcom down over 2%, but Broadcom just got back to me and a spokesperson tells me that they still expect the deal to close October 30th. But what timing, right, given the restrictions out today? Absolutely. So only uh, two weeks to sort out if that's uh, if that's going to be on track. Christina, thank you. Um, You know, it's interesting, Adam. I mean, do we have to now look at this group, at least NVIDIA, maybe some of the other directly exposed ones as, you know, I mean, look for Google, like, you know, it's 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 the entire world except for China is the is the end market. Um, Or is it just kind of friction that we have to work our way through Did China front load a lot of demand of buying of, of, of NVIDIA chips and maybe it's not that big a deal or how do we sort it out? I mean, I think the immediate reaction that you heard her summarize from NVIDIA and ASML were the same, which is there's no near-term impact, but it might be medium or long-term. But at the end of the day, it's all about time frame. I mean, NVIDIA, to me, has the best product in the early phases of a 10- to 15-year trend. So, of course, the stock's going to be worth way more in, you know, two or three and five years. Whether there was a surge through, I mean, everyone I know wants the thing to go down 20% so they can buy some. Right, so it's never going to go down 20%, right? Well, that's what I down do. close to 18% actually. Yeah, it was. Right? People yeah. want to, yeah, you know, I think they reported, you know, since they reported the whole NASDAQ, you know, sold off too. But, you know, I mean, like a relative underperformance of its peers. Yeah. I think people want to own it. So, look, can, can China produce the same um, power and speed of chips right now on their own? No. So the question is, can they, is this some sort of political thing and then they will have to come back to them later when they need them? We'll see. Yeah. So I'm, I'm skeptical that NVIDIA's product can be substituted by anyone else anytime soon. Cheryl, I know you've been uh, kind of saying you want to be buying dips in some big tech. Is this, does this qualify uh, with the semis here? I, I would say yes. You know, semiconductors are, are actually lagging the rest of the technology yeah. index as of today. And I said this when I was on the show last time a few months ago. I thought actually mega caps had gotten a little bit overextended and these names are expensive. So I sold at the money calls on some of these names. I'm feeling really happy today because now those calls have made up for any of the downward movement and I can add to those names with the proceeds. So it works out really well, it keeps me disciplined. But for me, any of these mega cap names, and especially in the semi-space, I would be buying on these dips. Um, The AI game is not revenue producing yet, but there's a lot of potential. I am interested in, um, in Adam and some of the work on NVIDIA. If you just you mentioned, you know, over the next five or 10 years, they have the best product. But the implied size of this market, if you really want to compound at this level, yeah. is wild. I yeah. mean, it's way bigger than like the cloud 
you know, infrastructure yeah. business? The answer of every paper I've read this year is you need more compute. Whether right. it's actually AI, which is a pretty misused phrase. Most of what people are doing is you know, systematically doing things more efficiently. We, at Trivera, we bought an NVIDIA GPU. It's out on EQIX uh, a couple months ago. Right. We're able to efficiently do work. But the amount of generative work probably is a little bit inflated. We'll, we'll see. Uh, but, you know, look, uh, in terms of the mega caps, I think of only NVIDIA as being a direct chip maker, some yeah. of these other ones are going to make subscale chips. So uh, again, like it's AMD's got a product in Q4, there's some stuff coming out of uh, AVGO, but at the end of the day, like, do you want a look back three to five years from now and say, I had exposure to the companies with the best compute in the mega trend? I think the answer is yes. I think you do. And um, I think you've wanted it already. I mean, NVIDIA's up, what, 10,000% in the last decade plus. So yeah. I, I'm a fan of sticking with this trend in any three, five, or 10 year. And if you're smart enough to get it right in a three to six month view, yeah. you know, God, God bless America. I just think yeah. that, you know, there's this nagging question, and I don't have the answer, of course, is, is this like the build out of, of you know, fiber optics and the build out of database, you know, with EMC in, in 25 years ago, where it was like, you couldn't buy enough of it until you had too much. There's of it. going to be two kinds of companies: those that have enough data can wall it off in a guard, predict their customer and, you know, uh, you know, you know, employee behavior, and be efficient with it. Yeah. Fire firms are paying lots of money to high-margin software data services uh, and fire employees and do some. I think that stuff's going to take a really long time, and mm -hmm. it's going to take many, many years. And so I think this is a really long trend. And by the way, as you know, you need to get new GPUs every two to three years. And so it's just going to be a constant you know, kind of growth uh, for, for a long time. Whether it's mid-singles to high-singles yeah, sure. and we're paying for mid-teens, that's a slightly different debate. But of course, you're going to pay more early. And you just had the two biggest upward sales revisions of any mega cap company ever yeah. the last two times NVIDIA reported. So. And, and I think limited chance they miss going forward. Yeah, trillion-dollar market cap can seem like a lot or a little, depending on what happens from here, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, Apple's yeah. $3 trillion, so, yeah, you know, for sure. close, two and a half, two, seven. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Adam, show, great to talk yeah. to you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. All right, let's get to our question of the day. We want to know, is this an opportunity to buy NVIDIA stock? Head to at CNBC closing bell on X to vote on that. We'll share the results later in the hour. We are just getting started here. Up next, surprising consumer strength. The XRT rising today on the back of better than expected retail sales numbers. We'll hear from an analyst about how he thinks this could impact the sector as we head into the holiday season. We are live from the New York Stock Exchange. You're watching Closing Balance News. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. 
To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Consumers activity has slowed down. It moves around from which categories, but in the aggregate across $4 trillion, 37 million uh, checking customers, it's slowed by half. And that means the consumer is being slowed down by the interest rate environment and all the stuff going on. That was Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan on Squawk on the Street earlier today, saying he sees a slowdown in consumer activity despite the stronger-than-expected retail sales report this morning. Joining me here to discuss is Greg Mellick of Evercore ISI. Greg, uh, it's good to have you here. It, it's, it's maybe some, uh, some mixed signals coming out. The unequivocally strong number from the government retail sales report today, uh, you know, also some upward revisions from the prior month. On the other hand, you know, some of the card tracking data maybe is uh, more ambiguous. And universally, expectations that the consumer is going to show some fatigue before too long. Where do you come down? Uh, we're in the, the slow drip deceleration is here. Uh, it's frankly been happening all year, uh, but it's not collapsing. And as long as we get good jobs growth, uh, we don't think U.S. retail sales are going to go nominally negative, which I think is the you know what, what the bears are really ultimately uh, thinking. Right. Uh, so, so nominally, certainly still pretty, uh, pretty strong. And of course, it's feeding into uh, some of the GDP models for the third quarter, close to 5% annualized growth. So clearly seems pretty robust, I guess, just not even in, across the, the retail space. And to me, the big question is, look, if you see weakness in certain segments, has the market already figured that out, right? You punish the dollar stores, you know, electronics has not been a hot spot uh, within retail. Uh, so where is there opportunity between what the market is priced in and where the consumer uh, is, is still strong? It's a great question. I think if you look at it from a category standpoint, you can see it all year and just continuing. The big ticket discretionary categories, things like electronics and appliances, home improvement, home furnishings, department stores, all those categories are down nominally year over year. So all the growth is coming from restaurants, drugstores, uh, some unique areas like auto parts where you know people can't afford new cars, so they're fixing up their old ones. So there are a few categories that are driving all of the growth. Uh, and a lot of the bigger ticket discretionary ones are down. In terms of picking retailers and stocks, we think this decelerating environment is is perfect for retailers that are gaining share. And we love to look at traffic as part of that. Uh, it can't just be by taking price. In fact, it really shouldn't be by taking price. It should be by winning more customers than you had. And if we look at our top names, our top five portfolio is Costco, Walmart, uh, uh, Kroger, uh, and then we'd look for O'Reilly Automotive and Sherwin-Williams to round out the top five. And so to me, those are companies that are winning share uh, and they're doing it in a way that they can therefore be more profitable uh, and come out of this stronger. Yeah, and certainly seems as if, um, you know, it tilts based on your process toward net defensive things like uh, Costco and Walmart. On the other hand, interested in Sherwin-Williams, I mean, is that simply because, uh, you know, stock's down enough? Is it a call on, on housing activity or something else? Yeah, no, uh, Sherwin has been our favorite in the whole home improvement space. So the, the three names we do recommend there are Sherwin, Home Depot, um, and Tractor Supply. Uh, but Sherwin is the one that we think has a nice margin story this year, that they finally have raw material costs coming down. Uh, and the pricing from the prior few years is flowing through to help good gross margin expansion. The other thing is the category tends to be a little bit more defensive than a lot of other areas of home improvement, uh, so that it, it's, it's a little less cyclical. So I would say that's why Sherwin is our uh, the horse we're riding in that area. 
Um, O'Reilly is another one that, that you, you point out. Yes, it's technically consumer discretionary, uh, but in reality, it acts more like a staple. Uh, if you got to keep the cars and the vehicle fleet running and we can't afford the new cars uh, to us, that's still the share gainer and the winner in the space. Is there any way to, to try and handicap uh, both how holiday is going to track from here and you know how to play that within the market they don't always link up and maybe sometimes we overplay the you know the holiday themes but how would you uh, approach it uh, look it's part of our job so we, holiday sales tend to uh, all the normal fundamentals are in play like what's job growth it's uh, etc and confidence but what happens more is the wealth effect tends to happen uh, is bigger so watching how the stock market does sort of between now and the next month uh, along with home prices holding up are two things that uh, we think will will help holiday sales maybe grow three or four uh, percent if that would be better. Our forecast is two and a half, just to be clear. Uh, but if we're going to see upside and holiday sales in those bigger ticket consumer discretionary categories, it's usually the wealth effect that gives you that extra little bump. Sure. And um, things like, uh, you know, maybe more reliance on credit among some consumer segments, things like that that seem like they're starting to maybe fray around the edges of the of the spending story. Uh, does any of that get your attention? It absolutely does. So we're starting to see uh, some cracks in the consumer uh, credit market. Uh, a lot of that, I think, is, you know, consumers unwillingness to pay the higher rates, but also banks less willingness to lend given uh, you know, some of the, the challenges early in the year, Silicon Valley Bank, et cetera. So I think when you put those two things together, uh, it, it's really, we're just set up for a, a slow, steady retail deceleration, not a collapse, again, as long as we have jobs. Uh, and so the, the key is finding those retailers that are gaining share, that are merchandising right, that have more traffic. Uh, and that's why those are the ones that we're really into. I think that'll be true this holiday more than ever. And, and value, I, I, I shouldn't ever forget that. With mm -hmm. that, those strong consumer balance sheets being chipped away, retailers that can lean into value are also the ones that are winning. Yeah, and presumably value is one of the reasons the traffic is up in certain places uh, as well. Uh, Greg, appreciate yeah. it. Thanks very much for the time. Thanks, Mike. Greg Malik. Up next, Star Venture Capitalist Rick Heitzman is back. He'll break down his thoughts on Wall Street's latest IPOs and where he thinks valuation should be headed from here. He'll join me at Post 9 right after this break. Closing bell. We'll be right back. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Welcome back to Closing Bell. Wall Street analysts out with a number of bullish calls on Instacart this week, but shares still trading well below their IPO price. Our next guest says that trend of lower valuations could be in store for companies looking to go public in the months ahead. Here at Post 9 is First Mark Capital's Rick Heitzman. Rick, good to see you. Thanks hey, for coming by. Hey, good to see you again. How's it going? All right. Uh, so we have a little bit of an early flurry of, uh, of IPOs. I think if there was something that unified a lot of them, uh, Instacart, Arm, you had a somewhat mature, privately held story uh, with somewhat motivated sellers, people yeah. who felt it was time. Um, what does it mean more broadly to you how the markets receive those? Well, I think it's people are taking their medicine. So the valuations you saw in maybe 2020, 2021, 
might no longer be real valuations. So Instacart took a significant step down to go public. Clavio, which is a very, very strong company, took a step down to go public. And even Loom, selling to Atlassian last week, took a step down to go public. But overall, those are all really good exits and all probably pretty healthy valuations. Right. I mean, I guess if you look at any publicly traded proxy for those types of businesses, they're probably down 60% from exactly. the highs in early 2021. So nothing that unusual about it. It shouldn't be that unusual. And, you know, in general, kind of mature investors are saying, hey, this might not be where we held it two years ago. But this is a good return for early investors. And it might be a time for this company to transition to the public markets or sell, or sell the business. So let's not get all caught up about where you were mm-hmm. and let's focus on where you're going. What types of themes or types of companies now seem like they're well positioned? Because it, it has changed to some degree. You know, we go back to early 2021 and it was kind of everything application software. And what about now? Well, it was go, go, go growth. Yeah, before. that's right. And it was all growth all the time. And now you've seen the companies that are popular now or companies have done a great job transitioning over the last two years, going from growth to profitability, focusing on unit economics, focusing on the underlying uh, operating metrics. So Clavio, which took a significantly lower discount than some of those others to go public, is a company that has great growth, growing 50, 60 percent a year at scale of a billion dollar company. And they're profitable. So they have good underlying financial metrics in addition to growth. And those are the companies that are weathering the storm the best. You know, when we talk about the Magnificent Seven, whatever little subcategory of companies, these like acclaimed winners of the economy right now, uh, we give them near trillion or trillion dollar plus or multi-trillion dollar valuations, presumably because their, their franchises are impenetrable and you can't challenge them. What does it mean for somebody trying to create Uh, opportunities in disruptive companies, in new innovation, uh, are they kind of using up all the oxygen? They're taking up a lot of oxygen. They have a low cost of capital. And also, they're probably responding more quickly than anyone we've ever seen in history. You know, early in my career, I've been doing this long enough, our, our startups would compete with IBM. Then our startups competed to a certain extent with Google and Microsoft. But now I I think Google where they are today, Microsoft where they are today, Amazon where they are today are responding much more quickly to changing environments. And that was kind of personified in what we've seen in the AI world. We're trying to, you know, we were just saying filter through the early run of earnings so far. And and one of those themes has been obviously companies looking for profitability, trying to pad margins. Uh, How do things feel in terms of just end market demand, enterprise side of things, what spending levels look like, and then I guess even on consumer. Well, it's a little bit soft. You know, we've seen a little bit of softness both on the enterprise as, and the consumer, despite being pretty strong, we've also seen you know, the, the, the early signs of weakness. So a little bit of consumer credit d- decreasing, uh, all the savings from COVID has gone away. So you know, therefore, what does that mean for 2024? Uh, it means that uh, the companies have to be stronger. They have to know their customers better. They have to be able to acquire their customers better and they have to focus on profitability. I know you're, you're kind of hosting a meeting of your own investors here. What is the appetite like now for you know, private startup or near startup businesses, because you, you have to imagine, you know, it's pretty fresh in people's minds. Oh, yes. How you had a little bit of a bust after the boom. 
Well, I think we're saying, hey, here's what we're doing. We believe that, you know, it was free money for a while. You know, zero interest rate environments made everybody a venture capitalist, so almost everybody a venture capitalist. And now you're retreating back to, hey, venture capitalists are people who've honed their craft for decades, who really like to work with early stage companies and help kind of uh, champion those companies through hard times to success. So you're really seeing a pullback even from the entrepreneur side and focusing on the experienced investors. And therefore, we're also seeing a pullback from entrepreneurs who were the tourist entrepreneurs and really people who want to build good companies. And those are the folks we're coming together with now to hopefully build the next generation of great companies. As you look at your portfolio companies or even just across the, those held by others, is there an itchiness, an urgency to try and you know create exits at this point? And does it seem like there's a backlog? There's a, there's a backlog of companies who need capital or need to do something mm -hmm. over the next 15 months. SVB came out with a study saying there's 6,800 companies that either need to raise money or exit by the end of 2024 if they don't cut their burn. So that's an enormous backlog that only a portion could be handled by the existing venture capital dollars or even M&A exits to the biggest players. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a number of companies that are going to face a reckoning, reckoning in the next 12 months. Is, uh, in terms of fresh new opportunities, is, is the AI theme dominating everything and therefore are the AI victims uh, going to become a new theme as well? That, that they will become a new theme. People, again, people who, have, who can adopt, right? So we see AI as there's uh, individual AI companies. We're also seeing a lot of AI-enabled companies. So a lot of uh, classic enterprise software companies are getting powered by AI or incorporating AI into the model. And even consumer companies are doing the same thing. If you look at kind of the travel assistance or even ways telling you how to get home the fastest. We're seeing AI being incorporated, but, it, but if you're not, if you're not staying ahead of that, you're not saying, how is AI going to affect my business over the next three years? You're going to be left behind. Yeah. Rick, great to catch up with you. Always good seeing you. Appreciate the time. Thank Enjoy you. the meeting. All right, up next, we're tracking the biggest movers as we head into the close. Christina, standing by with that. Hi, Christina. Hi, well, electric vehicle deliveries disappoint and an activist investor looking to cut costs at an apparel giant. Their stock action next. Under 19 minutes till the closing bell. Let's get back to Christina for a look at the key stocks to watch. Hi, Christina. Hi, well, let's start with VF Corp, the maker of vans and North Phase. It's having its best days since 2020 as activist investor Engaged Capital pushes for changes at the company including a board refresh. The firm also says it sees room for over $300 million in cash savings. VF Corp is down about 30% this year, and Engage Capital believes its plan could put the price in the mid-40s within three years. Shares are up 14% today on that news. And Lucid is lower after missing analysts' expectations for deliveries in the third quarter. The EV maker also posted a 32% drop in vehicles produced compared with last year. And that's why shares are down almost 6% today, down almost 30, about 27% year to date. Mike? Christina, thank you. Thanks. Last chance now to weigh in on our question of the day. We asked, is right now an opportunity to buy NVIDIA stock? Head to at CNBC closing bell on X. We'll bring you the results after this break. Let's get the results of our question of the day. We asked, is right now an opportunity to buy NVIDIA stock? Stock is down at almost 5% today, down 13% from its high. Uh, it is close, but most of you did say no, not quite yet. Um, yeah, pretty much neck and neck right there in terms of uh, yes or no. Well, the stock is up a cool 200% 
year to date. Uh, up next, United Airlines reporting in just a few minutes. We'll bring you a breakdown of what to watch when those numbers uh, hit in overtime. That and much more when we take you inside the market zone. We are now in the closing bell market zone. Steve Leisman is here to share the latest Fed speak headlines and what today's retail sales number could mean for the next move. Plus, Leslie Picker with a wrap up of big bank earnings. And Phil LeBeau looks ahead to United results out in overtime today. Steve, uh, we'll start with you. Uh, pretty unequivocally strong retail sales number for September. It collides with a bunch of Fed speakers who have, I think, in general, been uh, expressing no real hurry to do much else on rates. Although he did have Barkin out today talking about lags, talking about the consumer that's maybe been a little stronger in some pockets. How does it all net out to you? Well, uh, first, let's talk about retail sales. I, for the moment, it looks like a game changer in terms of Fed policy and that last quarter point hike, uh, Mike, because what's happened is G November is not really in play. It's very modest when it comes to the probability. However, when you look at December, it goes up. And now January is the new place where they're starting to talk about a rate hike there, at least start to price one in. It's over 50 percent. So what's happened, and I'm going to layer in Barkin now, Barkin is saying, yeah, we can be patient, but that means not doing anything immediately. But when they do get around and doing something, it seems like markets are starting to think more and more it may be a rate hike. And this comes after, you know, feeling pretty definitive the last couple of weeks of Fed speak saying, you know what, uh, it looks like we're going to be on hold and we, we reached the, the, the place where we don't need to do anymore. And one of the reasons, Mike, I just want to make clear, it's not just backward looking data. What's happened with this third quarter strength of retail sales is beginning to rethink the fourth quarter. And the fourth quarter now looks like it's going to be stronger. So that quarter, Mike, in which you're probably as sick as I am of hearing, is yeah. the one where we're finally going to get the slowdown. Maybe not now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think people were saying, OK, fourth quarter, you're going to have a big payback and maybe you're going to have less than one percent GDP growth. But we're in it now and it doesn't seem to be giving way. And, you know, just to your point about, you know, pricing in a little more on the Fed side or at least staying there, the two year note yield did pop above five point two. You know, that's the first time this cycle. And so that kind of gets you to where Fed funds more or less are at the moment. And so if, if you're saying that's over the next two years where it might average a long way of saying higher for longer is making its way into the market. You're right, Mike, and that's really important. I was actually going to mention that because when you think about what a two-year note is, well, it's the average of overnight rates uh, over two years. So if that number goes up, it tells you not just that. Be one thing if the six-month or the three-month or the one-year went up, but when the two-year goes up quite so much, it tells you that people are starting to bake that in. And, in fact, I can put some numbers behind that, Mike, because what's happened now is the belief in rate cuts is now being pushed forward. It was May on a bad economic day. It had been June kind of on average. And now you got to get to July of next year before more than 50 percent, there's a more than 50 percent probability of a rate cut. Yeah. So we're talking eight, nine months. Uh, all right, Steve, thanks very much. Appreciate right. you breaking that down. Pleasure. Uh, Leslie, uh, banks, uh, you know, Bank of America feeling uh, a little bit of a benefit from its numbers. Goldman Sachs, not so much. Uh, what are the takeaways? <laughs> yeah, there, there's a big difference in kind of how these companies are leveraged to uh, the overall trends of rising interest rates. So far, we've had 
five of the big six that have reported, all beating on the top and bottom lines. City, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America each hiked their net interest income guidance. So higher for longer rates, allowing for the biggest firms to over-earn on loan-making. Now, that's a boon for their bottom lines as the capital markets remain muted. But for firms with, say, less exposure to lending, a la Goldman Sachs, rising rates continue to have an impact. That firm reporting a $700 million-plus hit to earnings thanks to legacy investments in private equity and commercial real estate that have depreciated in value, thanks in part to those rising interest rates. And higher rates also led to $131 billion worth of unrealized losses on Bank of America's balance sheet. CEO Brian Moynihan, though, said on CNBC this morning, those losses would never be realized. Tomorrow, we'll hear from Morgan Stanley, several other larger regional banks in the latter half of the week. So each of them have their own tailwinds and significant headwinds, especially for those regionals that we uh, will see. Absolutely. And, you know, the market implicitly saying, as you mentioned, if Bank of America is is kind of a proxy for the U.S. economy more than anything else, if you're able to look past the unrealized losses that will never be realized in treasuries, then you can you can pay up for them. But for Goldman Sachs, even though there were tons of those extraordinary items, really write offs of of, uh, of sort of dead ends to the business from from the past, uh, it still was a misallocation of capital, I think, in the market's mind. And what do they do now absent a really busy deal? calendar and the capital markets looking like they're risk on again. Yeah, obviously, they're kind of in that camp of being super leveraged to the capital markets. And they led three of the biggest IPOs in September. We talked about them a lot. Clavio, they had a leading role in Arm, uh, and they led Instacart as well. All of those were a boon for uh, fees for equity underwriting. Um, Advisory still a little muted as fewer transactions closed during the quarter. But their plan, their strategy is really to build up their asset and wealth management business to kind of compensate for the more volatile returns that they see from their capital markets uh, business. Now, in the quarter, that took a 20 percent uh decline in revenue as a result of some of those legacy investments that we talked about. But they did see inflows of about $7 billion. I I believe it was, um, I forget the exact uh, statistic, like 24 quarters in a row or something like that of inflows into this business. And so uh, that's something that they've been touting as uh, a more stable, predictable uh, base the problem is, of course, with these these legacy businesses that they're looking to unwind. In the meantime, you start to see some lumpiness in terms of just that business when you break it out. Yeah, no doubt. Obviously, they're chasing Morgan Stanley along those lines. We are going to hear from Morgan uh, tomorrow, I guess. What what Where's the state of expectations? Because I have seen some analysts do some downgrades on the stock in the weeks coming up. Yeah, the question really is, um, some of it is on this cash uh, sorting phenomenon that we've seen elsewhere. The question is, what are the wealthy doing with their money? Are they keeping their deposits at Morgan Stanley or are they seeking higher risk-free yield elsewhere? And so that's going to be the key question when Morgan Stanley reports tomorrow. As you mentioned, the uh, investment banking environment, still very muted, uh, capital markets, some bright spots, but nothing, you know, to out earn other pockets of the business. So it will really look to what's going on with wealth. How are people where they're putting their money? Mm-hmm. Um, and are they still kind of doing that cash sorting or is that mostly behind us? Yeah, uh, be a big one for uh, for a glimpse into that. Leslie, thanks very much. Phil, what are we looking for uh, most importantly with United today? 
I think it's what we're going to expect for the fourth quarter, Mike. You know, we know that the summer was strong for United and really for all of the airlines, especially United with its international routes. So three things are really going to be standing out about the Q3 numbers. First of all, what are they saying in terms of domestic demand, especially the strength of the consumer, the revenue picture there? We've heard some stories about some softness at the lower end of the market. Are they seeing that at all? International? We know it's red hot right now. What about Tel Aviv? And then, of course, the Q4 guidance. As you take a look at shares of United over the last three months, keep in mind that what we heard from Delta last week was a narrowing of its guidance for full year earnings. Do we hear the same thing from United? Remember, its last earnings guidance for the full year was 11 to $12 a share. And don't forget, Mike, tomorrow morning, a Squawk Box exclusive. Scott Kirby, CEO of United Airlines. We'll talk to him about the Q3, but I think more interesting... What's, what are we expecting for Q4, not only for United, but for the airlines overall? They've got a lot of headwinds that are out there on the cost side, and that's going to be front and center in our conversation. Well, no doubt. And, you know, for as much as they say demand looks resilient, it's a more rational industry, the stock still trades at four times earnings. So the market seems to say this can't last. I think the market is looking at the overcapacity that's there, especially on the lower end of the market, mm -hmm. and they're wondering if that's going to creep into the higher end of the market. The premium players, the Deltas, the United, the Americans. Gotcha, Phil. Appreciate it. We'll uh, talk to you once those numbers are out for sure. As we head into the close, you see the uh, the Dow is almost flat. Uh, the S&P 500 was down as much as three quarters of one percent at the lows. It is also down to near even. It did make another run up toward 4,400, got back up to about a four-week high, was not able to stay there. The Russell 2000, though, for the second day in a row, is the standout. More cyclical stocks on that strong economic data and higher yields are performing. The Russell is up almost three percent uh, on a week-to-date basis, though, of course, digging out of a big hole. Market breath, uh, notably strong for the second day in a row in the New York Stock Exchange. About 70 percent of all volume is on the upside as the S&P tries to, uh, to finish just about uh, flat on the, uh, on the session. That's going to do it for closing bell. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.